Incident management is the process of responding to unplanned events or service interruptions and then restoring service to an operational state. Having robust incident management is vital to many software teams. Blameless is a framework designed to help software companies manage their production incidents effectively. It provides a workflow for managing the incident response, as well as the post-incident retrospective process. In this way, Blameless aims to give a unified learning and process feedback framework that focuses on actionable insights. Ken Gavronovic is the Chief Operating Officer at Blameless, and he is our guest today. This episode is hosted by Lee Acheson. Lee Acheson is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His best-selling book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business. Listen at mdb.fm. Follow Lee at softwarearchitectureinsights.com and see all his content at leeatchison.com. Dan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Good to be here, Lee. Good to see you. Full disclosure, everybody, as, as many of you might already know, Ken and I are very good friends, and we recently published a book together, uh, Business Breakthrough 3.0. So Ken and I have talked a lot about this sort of thing we're, we're going to be talking about today. And Ken, anything you want to add before we get started? No, uh, it's good to see you and love to dig in. This is a topic that you and I have talked about in different ways over the years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great topic, actually. So let, let's get started. Um, so let's start with some basics. So incident management has really multiple dimensions associated with it, right? There's, there's pre-incident monitoring and alerting. There's incident response, the process itself. There's cleanup afterwards. There's retrospectives. Where does Blameless fit in the stack and, and what is their sweet spot? Well, that's a good question, Lee. I think, first of all, like a lot of the customers I talk to, when they think about incident management, I actually think they define it even smaller. They think about the detecting and fixing is incident management, you know, maybe the call. And to me, you know, that is certainly a function of it. But if you think about enterprise reliability, a little bit bigger than that. It really, that's where I think you bring in the things, okay, well, during the incident, like communications, very critical. If your organization is having an outage, does your sales team know what to tell your customers? Does your customer success team know? Does, are your executives aligned on what's going on so that everybody's well-informed? You think about, you know, during the incident, are you capturing all of the metadata so there's some really great learnings, you know, continuous improvement post. After that, of course, you do a retro. And there's the technical parts of making sure, again, that you take all that metadata from the incident, the learnings. But then there's the process of, do are we actually creating action items so that we can fix this so that hopefully that same thing won't break again? And then that, beyond that, I think about you know enterprise reliability, which to me, incident management is usually just that first part for many people that I talk to. After you've kind of captured the things that you don't want to do again, how do you make sure that the team actually goes and prioritize that work so you don't have another incident with the same root cause. So I think about, you know, I, I like to think about this enterprise reliability and where incident management is a piece of it. Some people call incident management multiple pieces, but most of the people I talk to a lot of times just really think about it as the observing and fixing portion, at least in some of the conversations I've had. So you're focused on the 
post-incident side of the world, one our post-problem side of the world, not the detection of incidents as much as the how do we um, examine what did happen and how do we make sure that doesn't happen any other time in the future? Yeah. When I think about it, you know, we, t- we pick up where observability, um, you know, kind of ends in many cases. So we can import New Relic, we can import Datadog, all of those type of tools that you might have that tell you you have an issue. And so now you've got those alerts, they go off, the team knows that now there's an issue. Well, now you have to do a lot of different things. You have to create a custom, you know, Slack Teams channel. You've got to, you know, look up your service directory, start paging the right team members to come to that Slack channel, which is much better, of course, than a phone call. And then you have to start, you know, working the problem, communicating with people. So what we've done is really automate that incident fixing, the incident communication, the incident metadata capture of why it's actually happening for the for the afterwards. Then we have the other parts of it, that retrospective piece, the the RCA, the action items, then the dashboards, the putting it in ServiceNow, putting it in Jira or whatever tool you're using to make sure that that work gets done within the times that you set. And so that, I look at that as that's really that kind of continuous improvement circle from when it actually breaks, putting the right people together, all the way to identifying what happened, all the way to fixing it and making sure it doesn't happen again. That's really what we focus on at Blameless. Cool. So let's go one step deeper into this now. Let, let's start, you know, you say you have an incident on your site. Something happens on your site. You've, your your um, observability frameworks have notified you. Page of Duty has told you you've got a, got a problem. And now your team is starting to get engaged, starting to get engaged. Starting from that point, Let's talk through it a little bit more detail, the steps involved in incident management that every company should be doing, whether they're using Blameless or not. What are the steps that every company should be doing all the way through to the end of the process? And where does Blameless help with those? Can you help walk through that process? So all of the steps from, um, because yeah, you know, what you mentioned is it's really, it's an interesting thing because, you know, in this modern world, many people have deconstructed from the monoliths. Now they're in microservices, and it seems pretty straightforward. But a lot of things have changed because, first of all, what's down? Used to be the whole thing's down or the whole thing's up. But now you might have one subservice that's intermittently having issues, causing some cascading impact on something else, and so it gets a lot more more complicated. I think you know. So we can dig in it. There's the operational pieces. There's the technical pieces. Um, which one do you want to hit on first? Well, let's let's um, you know. So I'm a big DevOps fan. I'm a big you know, Stosa model fan. We've talked about that. So in my mind, the 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 owner operator are the same person. I, I prefer that model. I like that model. I think there's a lot of advantages to that model. So let's let's stay with that sort of a model, and and realize that we are talking large scale applications with multiple components. So a particular service or system is problematic. I want to get back to the question about what level within an application you do incident response, but let's, let's save that for a, for, for a well, little bit. We, I think at all levels, we do incident response, but let's go through the business process part, or the technical part. So but, um, you have a service, the service starts having some issues. It's a you build it, you own organization, you build it, you own it organization. So the software team gets paged to look at their particular service. And so they're now researching, okay, what is this service? Is there an impact? 
and they have to start communicating. So they've got to create, you know, there's the logistics, right? We've got to create a Slack channel where we're going to, to start working so everybody knows that they're communicating. There's a process of who's who's the incident commander, who's on point so that you're doing the updates. There's the process of how, how are we going to do the updates? So, you know, who's on point? Are those updates going out on a frequent basis? That's where it starts. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I was talking to um, a large streaming company that we'd all be familiar with that had a big outage not too long ago and well known for um, being very microservices focused. So thousands and thousands of microservices. And in this case, there is a core team that you know, I think almost all companies these days have a core team that's the catch all, but that was the one that had the services that did the actual streaming. Um, there was another team that did some things related to live events and they were in their own Slack channel doing their own triaging, disconnected communication wise from this bigger outage. And so the big team that was doing streaming wasn't communicated. So to your question, I would say the first thing is the right teams get paged, but then there needs to be that right process of how we're going to communicate. So we're going to set up a Slack room. There needs to be communication that the teams, this team, maybe multiple teams are actively investigating in case you have cascading impact. So that communication becomes really important. You need to be clear of roles and responsibility. Who's the incident commander? You know, who's who's driving the communication pieces? Who else do you need? How do you page them and get them easily onto the system? And then, you know, I think as you're going, as you start to uncover what's going on, I think capturing real time easily with commands, you know, like you're in Slack, hey, let's capture this piece of metadata. Let's capture this graph in New Relic or maybe a graph in Datadog. So that way you've got some great data post-incident. So you're not spending, you know, days or weeks after the incident's resolved, actually looking for all that metadata of what happened in the first place. Okay. So um, finding the right combination of people to be aware of an incident, that itself can be in a large organization and especially a large microservice driven organization, that itself can be challenging. I, I like the example you gave from the streaming company where two separate incidents can be going on that are very much related, yet the two teams know nothing about each other and don't know that the other team's having problems because of a poor communication. So lack of communication during an incident can be a huge issue. But so can over communication because of of you know signal to noise ratio and all those sorts of issues. So how do you find the right balance there between too much and too little communication? So you know that the right people are connected, but no more than the right people. I think that's fair. And so I'll just tell you how we think about it at blameless. Is it blameless? It really depends on the severity of the incident, what that service is, how it ranks how often you want to make those updates. So, you know, and blameless we think about is you think about defining these are our services, these are our severity levels. And then based on the severity levels, we want to communicate to these groups. So if it's a low severity, then you might want to have a much you know smaller group. If it's a high severity, you might want to have a much broader group. So I think whether you use something, you know, a tool like blameless or you do it in some other way, I think having mapped out clearly, and I think you have that in your book, you know, Architecting for Scale Previous, you know, think about the severities, think about who needs to be notified, how frequent you need to have those notifications so that the right level of communication happens with the right people. And I also think it's important to have a tool or some sort of tool that gives you that global view so you know you've got multiple incidents going on. Because if a team is, for example, triaging stuff, we'll call it off the grid, right? 
then other teams that might also be triaging things don't know that they're looking at it. So that's where I think it, where process becomes really important that you say with microservices, when you have an incident, once you declare it an incident, maybe it's a SEV4 or whatever it might be, because you're not quite sure of the impact, that you still at some point declare an incident once you have it, and then it communicates in the proper way to keep your whole enterprise aligned. Because you might have, you know, thousands of services or, you know, dozens or, you know, some people even have hundreds of teams. I still uh, guess I'm not quite clear what the process you you would use. So, so you use severity levels to determine the the blast radius, if you will, of the communication coverage, but um, um, or service because you might have a service catalog. So it might be the service. You know, this is a service that if this service goes down, you know, automatically it's going to be higher severity, and we will, or, or if this particular service goes down, we might want to have the communication. So I think the service catalog would probably be first. And then I think probably followed by the severity because, you know, it may be a SEV4 on a high profile service, but you, you, you know, that the blast radius isn't that impactful. Got it. Got it. So that, I guess that's the piece I was missing there is the the service tiers, which is like we used at Amazon. Correct. I didn't actually talk about those in the, in the book where, you know, a tier one service versus a tier five service. Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. Now, so, so given that, the goal of that whole process is to figure out who should be engaged in the in, directly in the incident response process and who should just be aware of it going on, right? Now, there, there's a different scale of involvement depending on where you are in relationship to the service under stress, right? If you're if you're a consumer of that service, you may want to be aware that a problem is going on and receive a certain amount of knowledge information as the incident is going on. If you're a little further away, you may only want to care to be notified when it's over. If you're closer, you may want to be engaged in the um, the active Slack channel trying to find the problem, diagnose the problem, fix the problem as quickly as possible. It all depends on your level of involvement with where this problem occurs. Do, are, are there some best practices on deciding? You know, I, I've, I, I'm going to take, a, before I finish asking that question, I'm going to take a little side note of what happened a lot at Amazon when I was working at Amazon is we would have calls for incident responses, right? And people would join the calls. And a lot of people would join the call simply because they cared about the outcome not necessarily because it had anything to contribute to the outcome. But we, at the time, this is early in Amazon, uh, Amazon days, didn't have a good way of separating the listeners from the engaged people. So what you tend to have is a whole bunch of people on a call, and you'd have random ideas coming in from random people having nothing to do with what was going on, and the signal-to-noise ratio of just the communication channel itself got too unwieldy. We had to start, you know, kicking people out of the call because we couldn't handle an incident with 300 people on the call effectively. Um, but yet all of those 300 people cared about the response. But since we didn't have a way to separate out caring from and engaging in the response, we couldn't, we couldn't um, uh, treat that correctly. What are the industry best practices for doing that sort of issue of deciding who should be actively involved in working an incident, 
and who should just be informed of what an incident, what an incident is going on, and when it's over, and what status is. What are the best practices involved in that? I think the, the to me the best practices is you want to have the minimum amount. You want basically the fix agents or or people that directly can help resolve the incident in the channel. Like you know, you and I. I don't know back at AWS, but I know Cox different ones. A lot of times people used to do phone calls. I'm not a big fan of phone calls because that's really where things could sometimes get even crazier. You know, as far as communication, I think you've got Slack, you've got Teams, which are great ways to communicate and let people multitask easier. So I think. Generally, what you want to do is have a channel that's created for the people that are directly involved in the incident. And then you want to have regular communication. At the same time, you want to create talk channels. You might want to make it specific to this incident, or maybe you have a broader channel. Like you might have, let's just say it's company incidents. So you might have, hey, this is the people that are working on it directly here. They're doing updates. And then we've got a global channel that everybody can see where they can get those updates. So that's where, you know, to answer your question explicitly, is I think the people that are fixing the agent, that fixing the work should be on the Slack channel directly. They should be informing other people, which might be customer success, sales, leadership, whoever it might be in a different Slack channel. That's where they're getting those updates. That's where they're communicating. And then if they're, if you want to have two way, they can go, somebody can go to that other channel. You want to leave the people that are solving the problem alone. They're already under a ton of stress. Maybe it's in the middle of the night and a bunch of questions thrown at them simultaneously doesn't help. That's my opinion. What are your thoughts? Yeah. And, and so the the onion approach to Slack channels, essentially, you have the core team that's that tight channel and then go out from there. I, I completely agree with that. I think another best practice too um, that is often, um, often missed or often not managed effectively is the level of involvement. Uh, you know, often incidents attract higher level managers, right? And sometimes higher level than should be involved in, in an incident. I've had, you know, more than one incident where everything was going fine and then a VP joined the Slack channel or joined the phone call and everyone started talking differently. Right, um, because you know the boss, boss, boss's boss's boss was in the room now, and we have to be very careful what we say now, and that changes the scope of the type of conversations that go on as a negative. It changes it. So I think the other thing you need to do is to make sure that it's not only you have layered involvement, but you limit the scope of 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 management or, or of, uh, of um, responsible parties that can be involved too, you know? So just, you know, if you're, even if you are the owner of a service, but you're two levels removed management wise from the owner of the service, that doesn't mean you need to be involved in the day to day or the moment to moment um, uh, issue associated with an incident. And this is something I think Amazon did poorly too. You'd, you'd regularly have, directors and VPs in the smallest level incidents, just because they were such a customer focused company, everybody cared about any time that there was an incident. And so, and it, and it does affect things. So I think you want to layer communication outward, not only, um, you know, for other teams, but also upward as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And so that's when, when I said create this, not just for other teams, you could have an executive channel. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. We used to have one one particular product. If you went to a car dealership and applied for credit, it was it was 
like 70, 80% of the market. And so if there was an outage, it was a really big deal because there was broad impact. And so in that case, there was a totally separate executive channel where, you know, information would go to them so they could stay updated where the people that were fixing it could be focused on that. Um, I think your point, because sometimes there's also the, there's the business leadership and then the, the technical leadership, and those can have, you know, two different things. Sometimes technical leadership may have some things that they can add or they can chill the conversation. I think that's where you probably align around expectations. If you've got like a critical tier one service and it's, you know, down for 10 minutes and the 15 minutes and the teams, you know, can't figure it out and you've got some, you know, maybe some executive is also very technically astute, maybe is, you know, better at troubleshooting that team. That's that delicate balance. At some point, it might make sense for them to get in there but certainly not in the first few minutes. I think probably setting reasonable expectations. And I got to be honest with you, I'm a little biased in this one because sometimes I've been that VP or SVP that, that joined a call. So, But I would always try to do it. You know, I would get the updates. And if it looks like the teams was getting there, you know, and within a reasonable amount of time, you would, you know, leave it alone. But if something was dragging or looked like they weren't getting the right resources brought into the channel in a timely manner or you know maybe they thought there were some things that were difficult decisions like hey if we do this one thing um, maybe we can uh, lose data and so let's get a, somebody to make a decision that's where I think it might make sense to have somebody a, a technology executive I, I don't think it usually makes sense to have business executives on a technical conversation because usually that just does just kind of have more of a chilling effect but I think even technology executives you want to cap the level of involvement um, based on the incident type and the level and, and the problem. Obviously, the, the the greater the severity, the greater the importance of the service, the higher the level of involvement that makes sense. And, and I get all that. But I think you still want to cap it because I, off, I almost always have seen from an organizational standpoint, higher levels in the organization want to be involved more so than they should be involved, whether it's technical or business. They that I think that that's often the case. So I I hundred percent agree with you, but I think it does apply to technical leadership as well. You know, one of the things I did at Amazon when I was at AWS and Amazon, which is a little later in my Amazon career, um, uh, one of the things that I always did was I always had my team. I was I ran a two pizza team. And I always had my team were the ones that were allowed on the call for the incident, and anytime. Like my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss wanted to get involved in the call. I politely told them about, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, asked them to leave and to come into another phone call that I just would run separately with them. And then I would go back and forth between the two calls and give them an update what was going on without having them involved in the call itself. So it was more like a read-only call, right? Do you, yeah, I totally agree. And that's like with Blameless, we basically do exactly what you're talking about in an automated way. So there is an automated executive Slack channel and the engineers can do updates and that automatically sends that. So no one needs to go to that Slack channel or reach out. They can get the updates there. And if somebody has questions in that channel, they could ask, you know, back in AWS times, at Lee, I've got this question so that you don't have them uh, jumping in. I, I uh, So I think I'm 100% aligned with you. There's obviously some exceptions when it is there, but for the most part, you got to trust the team. And as long as you've got the updates, that's where I go back to communication is so critical. I would do the same thing as I would proactively give heads up to higher levels 
if I knew there was an incident going on that they might care about. Because usually, as long as people are getting good information, then they tend not to jump in those calls. They have comfort that the situation's under control. So one thing we haven't talked about yet, and we probably should talk about, is um, uh, the retrospective aspect after the uh, incident is over and the process involved in that. And and do you want to give a perspective about what Blameless does in, in that area? Well, for Blameless, we, we automate that whole process. So, you know, whether it be creating the template, porting all of the metadata, a lot of the work that's done to prepare for an RCA, to capture the action items, to submit them automatically to JIRA and ServiceNow, we automate all of those workflows. So that's certainly important and saves, you know, I was on a QBR with the customer and they said they saved 55% of engineers' time because it's, you know, that's just a low value effort for, you know, exercise for engineers. What they really want to be focused on is discussing the details of the problem and getting into how can we prevent this? How can we, I always, I like to think about it sometimes like, is there a chance we can build a don't, do not repeat plan so that we've got some action items so this thing doesn't happen. And it, you know, I think if you automate it, then you can get people focused on the most important piece, which I like to talk about that because I think that's where a lot of companies in particular also fall down is setting the expectation that it is a blameless exercise, that it's not a figuring out who did something wrong. It's really just, you know, continuous improvement. How can we all uncover what happened so that we can figure out how this is hopefully not, if it's preventable, how it cannot happen again? And creating that culture where it's not blaming, it's not, you know, this team versus another team. And and that gets challenging, especially if, you know, Lee, I think we've probably both seen some companies that they have a DevOps team, um, and then they have the software engineering team, and the DevOps team runs the software, and the software engineering team builds the software. Well, that's almost just still the old model, right? And then you know, and some uh, cause a lot of friction, right? It's just relabeled old model, right? Yeah, that's I, the the whole concept of the DevOps team um, drives me crazy every time I I hear it, but. You know, can I'd love to talk more about this? I think we're going to have to do another episode because uh, we're 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 going a little bit long here now, and because we really haven't talked too much about the retrospective um, uh, side of it, I'd like to. There's a whole lot more conversation I think we can have here, and uh, maybe we should try and schedule some time to to uh, do another follow-on episode. But for yes, for now, I think gr- we're going to have to bring this one to an end. You know, Ken Gavranovich is the COO of Blameless, an incident response and management company. Ken, thank you very much for joining me today on Software Engineering Daily. Enjoy it, Lee. Thanks.